0: My name is uh, Jonathan Kenzie. I'm one of the members here at St. John's. And let me offer you a very warm welcome. Uh, I should put paid to the vicious rumour that you have to pay for these seats at the front uh, on your way out. Uh, So in future, feel free uh, to come forward. Uh, Before we start, why don't I pray? Father God, we thank you for the privilege of meeting here this morning and being able to read your word. Father, I pray as we look at uh, these passages Today, that you'd use the weakness of my words uh, to reveal your glory to us. Amen. Well, do keep uh, your Bibles open. Uh, We're going to be looking primarily at Psalm uh, 45 uh, and also at Revelation. Um, And you should have received one of these green uh, sheets on the way in. So uh, if you want to take notes, uh, do look at that. Come back with me, if you will, to the 29th of July, 1981. About three and a half thousand people are gathering in St Paul's Cathedral and about 600,000 people line the streets of London. A five-year-old boy gets dressed into his Sunday best, even though it's a Wednesday, and carefully picks out the special leather-bound Bible given to him by his grandfather, commemorating the Queen's Silver Jubilee. He walks downstairs to the living room and joins the rest of his family who, along with nearly three-quarters of a billion people, are gathering across the globe to watch the wedding of Prince Charles, uh, the heir to the English throne, and Lady Diana, the beautiful princess. The TV coverage caught all of the pomp and the ceremony that day. It really was the stuff of fairy tales. Well, times have changed, and I don't even wear my Sunday best on a Sunday anymore, but I remember very much of that day Uh, clearly. Even today in an age where living together is part of everyday life and 13 marriages an hour are dissolved in England, we still love a wedding. It's a day of celebration, good times with friends and family and at its very heart is something that our souls have yearned for since the beginning of time. Think back to the story of creation when God had made his perfect world. He looked at it and declared that it was good. But he recognized that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, and so from him he created Eve, bringing into reality that very first marriage. Genesis 2 ends with verses similar to Ephesians 5 that we saw at the the top of our server sheet. It declares that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become One flesh. That desire for marriage, to intimately share our life with someone else, to be united with someone, appears to be in our very DNA. Well, today's psalm is a love song written for another very special royal wedding. We're not told exactly who's getting married, but it appears to refer to the wedding of a king in the line of David. And just as a poet laureate might compose a poem for the wedding of Charles and Diana, so, too, the choirmaster here has written of this royal union. He too is gripped with excitement over the forthcoming wedding. Look there in verse one. His heart is stirred by a noble theme. The words are falling off his tongue onto the page. And he starts by turning his attention to a glorious bridegroom. I wonder if you read that psalm, whether you're a little bit surprised, like me by the emphasis that he gave to each party. In 2016, Bride magazine suggested that you put aside about £2,300 for the bride's uh, bits and bobs on the wedding day. That doesn't include the wedding ring. That's about another uh, £2,500, apparently. Whereas for the groom, they reckon £440 is sufficient. (laughs) To put that in context, that's, that's just about double... Uh, what is proposed uh, for the bride's headdress or veil alone. At the ceremony itself, you've been there, the groom is standing at the front of the church, but things don't really get get going until the organ strikes up, at which point the entire church swivel 180 degrees to look at the bride who makes her way slowly down the aisle with her entourage. The wedding day may be about the union of two people, but there's no doubt that in our culture, Uh, that it's very much the bride who steals the headlines. But not so here. See how the writer devotes most of his time to the groom. We've already seen in verse 1 that he's addressing uh, his song to him. He goes on to lavish praise on him. Verse 2, there's no doubt in the psalmist's mind when he declares him to be the most excellent or handsome in some translation of the sons of men. People would have gushed about meeting him. His words are gracious. He's blessed by God. Verse 3 Not only is he beautiful, but he's a warrior. With his sword ready, he rides out victoriously. And what of his character? He doesn't ride out for war for personal gain, in anger, or for vengeance. Verse 4 tells us he rides forth on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. And what of those that oppose him? Well, his arrows will not miss their targets. They will find his enemies' hearts. And they will fall. Well, history is littered with, uh, with great leaders, uh, great soldiers. But not every great soldier is a great leader. But not so our hero. He rules with a scepter of justice. He loves. He doesn't aspire. He doesn't aim. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness how different the motives of many of our leaders today and on and on the the psalmist goes verses uh, seven and eight tell us that he smells good he's cultured he lives in ivory palaces delighting in music his servants are daughters of kings they're princesses well in this age of internet dating I wonder what the, uh, the profile of the bride might be I guess it would be rather different from this example. Desperately lonely loser, single white male, 32, miserable, apathetic, tired of TV, and watching my roommate's hair fall out. Seeks depressed, unattractive, single white female, 25 to 32, no sense of humor, for long talks about the macabre. Now, whilst that may sound rather unattractive, isn't there a bit of you that, sa- that says that, uh, that at least it has a ring of honesty about it? Our king in Psalm 45 just sounds a little too good to be true. After all, even David, one of Israel's finest kings, committed adultery with a woman and then had her husband killed so that he could marry her. Surely our writer here is just some sort of sycophantic courtier who knows how best to advance his career. But did you notice what else was said of our king? Look down at verse 3. God has blessed you. Not just until the end of your life, but forever. Verse 6 His throne also is forever. Is there a king of Israel today? I don't think so. No, whose throne is it? Your throne, O oh God. Look down further at verse 17 He will be remembered in perpetuity, and nations will praise him forever. It appears that the psalmist is not writing as he does for the good of his career. Rather, he's making it clear that our king, our groom, is no ordinary man. How could he be? Instead, he's making it clear that he is God himself. So we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when the writer of Hebrews claims these verses as prophecy of Jesus, God's son. This is Hebrews 1, verse 9. But of the son, Jesus... He, God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here is Jesus' glory, so often hidden perhaps during his earthly ministry, but revealed fully and magnificently in these words of Psalm 45. Well, what of the bride? Uh, important as the groom is, without a bride, there is no wedding. Well, we first meet her at the end of verse 9, standing at the king's right hand. And just as the bride's dress is a major talking point of weddings today, our bride, too, is dressed beautifully. There she stands in the gold of a fear. Verse 11 it tells us that she's stunningly beautiful. Our groom wants for nothing he could have his pick of women. But even this great and magnificent king is enthralled by her beauty. Verse 12, it's not just the king who recognizes her qualities. She's respected and desired by the men of wealth, or as the ESV translates, the richest of people. She's glorious in verse 13 as preparations are made for her to be presented to the king. Her embroidered garments are stunning in their quality, in their beauty. They're interwoven with gold. She has companions to attend to her every need, such as her importance. And in verse 15, finally, uh, they're led to the king. The mood is infectious. All involved are full of joy and gladness. She does indeed, uh, indeed appear to be a beautiful bride who is truly fit for such a king. But if our psalmist has been pointing us beyond a human king, to the forever King Jesus. What then of his bride? After all, we don't see in the Gospels that Jesus got married. Well, Revelation 19 tells us that Christ is to be married. Let's turn back to those verses. These are verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb, that is Jesus, has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The excitement is palpable. The wedding of the Lamb, the wedding of Jesus, has come. That excitement that we enjoy in our wedding celebrations is here also. The talk, no, the roar of heaven is thunderous hallelujahs. But who is this bride of Christ? Well, that verse at the top of our our service sheet from Ephesians 5 tells us. Paul has been talking about husbands and wives, but he ends his teaching by saying, I am talking about Christ and the church Now, in today's society, when we think of church, we might think of a building, an institution, but the Bible never does that. When the Bible talks about church, it talks about God's people, those trusting in Jesus, you and me. So if Psalm 45's king is Jesus, then the rest of the Bible makes it clear that the bride is his church, his people. And indeed, we really ought not to be surprised about that, because throughout the Bible, we see the relationship between God and his people portrayed as a marriage. Psalm 45 seems to be excitedly declaring that Jesus desires to enter into a relationship with his people. Not just a passing formal relationship with loose ties, but an intimate marriage itself. A lasting marriage that makes even our grandest weddings look like a registry office formality. On that wedding day we will hear from heaven the most awesome cry of hallelujah. And so we will live happily ever after. Or will we? Imagine it's your wedding day, wracked with unbearable guilt you call your fiancé on the morning of your wedding. You share with her that in fact you've been having a relationship with her best friend for the past six months, and that the money you've both been saving for a deposit on a house has been spent on whining and dining her rival. Well, I don't suppose it's a call that you would make with the expectation that at two o'clock that afternoon, you'd be standing in the church and saying, I do. She's speechless and then furious. The wedding is cancelled and she tells you she never, ever wants to see you again. The engagement ring is tossed in the Thames. She's devastated. Her friends tell you that you're a worthless loser. And so that everyone knows the truth, they publicise your behaviour all over social media. Your parents despair as to where they went wrong when bringing you up. Most reasonable people would conclude that you'd got what you deserved. No right-minded person is going to argue that you should be given another chance. After all, your engagement merely looks forward to the marriage to come, the day itself when you will have to answer I will to the question, will you love her, comfort her, honor and protect her, and forsaking all all others, be faithful to her as long as you shall live. How could she possibly ever believe you? And yet that is exactly how we, God's people, have treated God. Not uh, Not only that, but we've not just done it once or twice, but we do it again and again. A quick read of the Old Testament sort of famous stories makes that plain, Indeed, the prophet Hosea's marriage to a prostitute who was unfaithful to him time after time was meant to reveal to God's people how they treated him. This beautiful, glorious, victorious, truth-loving king of Psalm 45 who fights for justice and righteousness is betrayed by his bride, his people, again and again. Times have changed, but his people haven't. We are no different, just as we uh, shared together in the confession. For some of us, our mistakes are plain to see, whilst the rest of us do our very best to maintain that carefully crafted appearance that we're we're as good as as anyone else. Uh, We look around ourselves and content ourselves that we're good enough. But inside, I don't even live up to my own standards, let alone those of God's. If I had a little permanent speech bubble above my head that transmitted my every thought and deed, you would be horrified. There is no way that the bridegroom described here in Psalm 45 uh, would be looking at me and saying, he's the one, he will be my bride. I bear none of the qualities attributed to the bride in our psalm. Every time we choose to ignore God and disobey him, when we're proud or lie, to avoid being exposed for what we are, then we pit ourselves against our king. Our king who's riding forth on behalf of truth, humility and righteousness. And if we're not for truth and righteousness, then we're the king's enemies. And verse 5 makes it clear that his enemies will fall. It can't be any other way. Verse 4 does not say the king rides out in hope of victory. No, it says he rides forth victoriously. His victory is assured. Nothing is going to prevent the establishment of his kingdom of justice where righteousness is loved and wickedness will be destroyed. God has decreed his throne will last forever and that his sons will be princes throughout the land. We could be forgiven that there can be No happily ever after. How could we possibly ever be part of a bride so beautiful? But our bridegroom is not some lovesick fool. We don't need to hope against hope that we can fool him long enough until the marriage ceremony is over and he really finds out what we're really like. No, he loves his people in spite of their infidelity. He has spent all of history calling his people back to him, asking them if they will accept his invitation to be with him forever. But he cannot tolerate the unfaithfulness of his bride if he's to remain the king painted in Psalm 45. And so our king did ride out victoriously from his kingly throne in heaven and came to earth in humble human form to claim his bride once for all. As Jesus died on the cross, he took our lies and pride and unrighteousness and nailed them to that cross, so that truth and humility and righteousness may prevail instead. And in doing so, what happens? Well, Ephesians 5 also says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Whereas before our lives were some sort of dirty wedding dress, we will now be made spotless and radiant, washed by the blood of Jesus. It may be obvious, but it's worth clarifying that at this point, we shouldn't forget that life, however good it might be, is not quite Revelation 19 good. We're not yet spotless and radiant. Christ's victory over sin is won, death is defeated, but whilst we've had a glimpse of the marriage to come, we're not there yet it will only fully be realized when Christ returns again. On Jesus' return, Jonathan Edwards, the New England Puritan, says this, Then the church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no more distance or absence. She shall then be brought to the entertainments of an eternal wedding feast and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, Yea, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his love, and she shall drink her fill. Yea, she shall swim in the ocean of his love. Which one of us wouldn't want that sort of love? Before we finish, though, come back and look at verses 10 and 11 with me in the psalm. I wonder if they strike you as a little bit odd. This is, after all, a wedding song. The king has chosen his bride, and yet the psalmist uh, takes it upon himself to make an appeal to her. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. We mustn't miss this call of the psalmist. Do you remember those verses from Genesis we read earlier? A man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So today, we too have a decision to make. The glorious king has a proposal. He's asking us whether we will be his people. Will we be his bride? Will we leave everything else and accept his offer to be with him forever and enjoy the eternal wedding feast? If he's as good as the psalmist says, what's stopping us? if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I hope that you may understand that this is great news for you today, and that you would accept his invitation to be part of his people. Well, maybe you like the idea about uh, knowing Jesus, but you're still not quite sure. Maybe you feel you're not good enough. Your life is such a mess that, uh, that if the people here in church knew, let alone Jesus, well, the shame would just be too awful. Well if that's how you feel, let me assure you that you are in good company, or shall I say bad company. No one here or in any other church is good enough. And Jesus' eyes are wide open. He's done his due diligence. He's made his invitation, knowing everything you have ever thought and done. And that is why He came to die on a cross for you. Well perhaps this news is not so new, but you've never really stopped to consider the invitation. Perhaps unconsciously you've answered, let me think about it, Jesus. Maybe later. After all, Jesus is just one of many options in life. You're searching for happiness and security, but you're exploring other options, a human relationship, a career, a particular lifestyle that will really bring you fulfillment. Well, the psalmist makes it clear that the invitation is not forever. You've got to RSVP. Ultimately, if we reject Christ... We reject what he stands for, and unwittingly we side with his enemies, whose fate is sealed. Well, if any of those descriptions uh, describe you, do come and see me afterwards. It would be great to chat, Um, or sign up for one of our Christianity Explore courses, where you can explore this further. But please make it a priority to hear Jesus' call. Will you allow him to be your king, and to love you as he desires to do? But for many this morning, you'll already be part of the people of God, waiting expectantly for that wedding feast. If so, can I encourage you to stoke the fire of passion for your bridegroom? If I'd asked you when you came in to describe Jesus, would your description have looked like that of Psalm 45? Perhaps like me, your view sometimes is a little too narrow. We miss the magnitude of his strength, the wonder of his beauty, his purity... Do you wonder anew every day why he wants you? Do our hearts cry, hallelujah, praise the Lord? Or have we given up spending time with him each day? Are we vigilant to the danger of being beguiled by other gods? A promotion at work, ever more financial security, the success of our children, a human relationship. All good things, things that God may well give you to enjoy, but do they threaten to push him aside? So let me urge you to root out anything that dulls the passion and do as the psalmist says, forget it, leave it behind. And let's not forget that we must do this together. These promises are really made to the church. It won't just be one of us and Jesus standing there on that day. It will be all his people. Together, are we taking seriously our status as his betrothed people? In Corinthians, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Imagine what it would look like if we adopted the same jealousy for each other. Are we committed to helping every one of us get ready for our wedding day? Do we love each other enough to gently correct one another if our thinking is not right, or our lifestyles don't appear to be what they ought to be? Are we harbouring unspoken bitterness against one another or withholding forgiveness from someone that threatens the unity of God's people? Do we love the people we find difficult or strange? God loves his people in word and deed, in spite of their unfaithfulness, but do we? I hope also that Psalm 45 has reinforced the importance of human marriage. For Christians, our marriages are to model the relationship between Christ and his people, the church. This is a wonderful privilege, but as we've seen today, it's not one to be taken lightly. For many, their marriages are a wonderful blessing, but unsurprisingly, for many, they are difficult, and for some, they are the source of great pain and regret. But marriage is a relationship based on promises, not feelings. They need to be worked at even when it seems hopeless. If we break those promises, we imply that God's covenant promise To be faithful to his bride can be broken, and it cannot. In contrast, a good marriage, and note I didn't say an easy marriage, will point those within it and those who observe it to Jesus and to a much greater, more wonderful marriage in the future. As an aside, I should be clear that whilst Christians, we should grieve about broken marriages. It's not an unforgivable sin. The grace and forgiveness that God offers his unfaithful bride Uh, despite her repeated failures, is just as available to those people who find themselves in that position, as indeed it is to the rest of us who are in need of it, as we fail God. And if you're not married, I hope this hasn't been too difficult a sermon to listen to. Whilst Jesus and uh, and Paul commend the uh, advantages of singleness, for many it is very hard. It's all too easy when we're talking about the joy of marriage to forget how hard it is not to be able to experience a marriage personally if that's what we desire. Or the hurt that can accompany an unrequited love, the sacrifice of giving up a relationship for God, um, or living in the aftermath of a broken relationship through death or divorce. But I pray that if that's you, you would be reminded of our our bridegroom's love for you. The promises of Psalm 45 and Revelation 19 are for every one of us. Human marriage, even in its best form, can only ever be a pale imitation of the heavenly marriage to come. It is also temporary until death do us part, after which time we will together enter the eternal, wonderful, permanent marriage with our King that all of God's people will enjoy. I started with my recollection of the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. And at their wedding, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Lord Runcie, gave the address and he said, here is the stuff of which fairy tales are made, the prince and princess on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, they lived happily ever after. This may be because fairy stories regard marriage as an anticlimax after the romance of courtship. Willie may have had great foresight given the sad breakup of that marriage, but his address is not true of our passage Today. God's courtship of his people has been messy. But for those trusting in Jesus, we have begun to taste a little of what is to come. It's good, but not yet great. But we look forward to the day in heaven when heaven will cry, hallelujah. That marriage day really will be the climax that we have been waiting for. So today, Jesus is asking you, will you come? Please don't miss the invitation. Revelation 19:9 9 says blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. So today I urge you to hear the psalmist as he says listen forget everything and bow to your king. Let me pray. Father God we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for his glory, his purity, his love of righteousness, his hate of wickedness. And we thank you for his love of us. Father, may we bow to him and enjoy the love that he brings.